0: I've always uh, had a problem uh, with saying something and then getting a look sometimes uh, from somebody, usually my wife, thinking, did he just really say that? That's happened a lot over this weekend. I've been tired, and sometimes I say things and I think, "What?" like the bride thing, I'm tired. Uh, But there was a time when I worked for a company in Plymouth Uh, where I was made to feel like this, but I didn't actually say anything wrong. Uh, Paula and I had attended the wedding of one of my work colleagues. The woman was not in my department where I worked, but I had worked with her in the past. And because she was not in my department, I didn't get to see her all that regularly. So the next time I saw her was three months after her wedding. And in a conversation, I asked her, how's married life going? And the look that I got from her was one that I get when I say something which everyone thinks, did Steve really just say that? She accused me of trying to get some gossip about her to share with other people. And I should have heard from the office gossip that she had been separated from her husband and is looking to get a divorce. Now, I wish she had known me better than to A, think I would listen to that gossip, and B, would gossip about her. But was it really unreasonable for me to ask somebody, after three months of marriage, how is married life going? Is that the kind of question where I should get that kind of look of, what did you ask that for? Usually, you would assume... After three months they would still be in a kind of a honeymoon period, right? At the same time, <laughs> at this particular wedding, the groom did get the name of the bride wrong. <laughs> and so perhaps I shouldn't have been all that surprised. Another incident when I was working in IT was where I was when you get you get birthday cards and such things passed around and you sign them. Well one time I got a card that I was asked to sign congratulating somebody on their divorce going through. Well, I refused uh, to sign that card. I could not sign a congratulations card for a divorce. But this is the society that we're living in. The average marriage in the UK lasts 11.7 years, with the highest chance of divorce occurring between the fourth and eighth wedding anniversaries. It is estimated that 42% of marriages in the UK end in divorce, 42%. And the divorce rate actually, by all accounts, is falling, which you may think is good news, except when you caveat that with the fact that the reason it's falling is because people are not getting married as much and are normally cohabiting instead. In our society, we have what's called no-fault divorce, where marriage can be dissolved without any wrongdoing being shown by either party. I mean, it's a silly name, isn't it? No fault, as if we're getting divorced because we've been perfect. Now, the Roman world, which Jesus spoke, had the same problem in their day. The Roman world had high divorce rates, and it was socially acceptable, the subject of gossip rather than social disgrace. Remarriage was also high. And again, it was socially acceptable for any reason at all. But Jesus is not interested in what is socially acceptable. He is interested in what is righteous. And that is the call in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wants us to live life that exceeds, in verse 20, the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And this evening, we're going to examine how exceeding righteousness relates to divorce and discipleship. And you'll find these verses in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 31 to 32. In the church uh, Bibles, that's page 968. Matthew chapter 5 and verses 31 to 32. It has been said... Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now Jesus, in saying these words, puts them in the context of what he has said before about adultery. And he's talking still about adultery, but this time in a different way regarding divorce. Now, some of you may be wondering, what is the problem with divorce? Why is divorce such an issue? Surely, if you aren't getting on together, then why not divorce? Well, aside from the impact that broken homes has on society as a whole, and especially on children, where research has shown that marriage is the best, most stable environment for bringing up children, the Bible's teaching on marriage shows why this is a problem. Now, last time when we looked at adultery, uh, we we began in Genesis chapter 2. And we said there that God is not restricting us just for the sake of it, but rather God is showing us the best way that he designed us to live. That's true with sex, which we looked at last time. And it's true also with marriage, which we look at this time. Thriving marriages are the best way to be married. And divorce is always a tragedy that brings untold heartache to many. Now, as we went back to Genesis 2 last time, so too, let's go back there again. It's in page 4 in uh, the Church Bibles. Uh, I'm going to read uh, Genesis uh, chapter 2 again. Uh, just like we did last time, but we're going to look at it from the the context uh, of marriage. So we're going to look at chapter 2 from verse uh, 20, uh, from verse 19, sorry, uh, sorry, verse 21. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs Well, we saw last time how uh, sex in this passage was within marriage, but we also see from this passage what marriage is. Marriage is the leaving of one family and the establishment of another family unit into which children can come. Marriage is between one man and one woman. And as we said last time, they are compatible and, the, the, and with one man and one woman are the only way that they could fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply, which they received earlier on in Genesis chapter 2. Male and female are different and important. They bring different but important identities and responsibilities into the marriage relationship. We see here that marriage is permanent. The word uh, united there is more than merely having sex, the sexual union. It speaks of holding onto, of not letting go, it talks of permanence. In the authorised version, you, you, you read that word cleave. Cleave. It's permanent. It's not letting go. It's not something that you can just break off. It's a permanent thing. And then we see that marriage is instituted by God. In Genesis 2, it's part of the creation account. God made marriage. He designed it. And it's, it's important to note this because before any nation state was established... Marriage was there. So marriage is an ordinance of creation, not a state-owned institution. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees challenged Jesus on what reason is legitimate for divorce, or rather, in their case, what reasons. And in answering the question, Jesus goes right back to Genesis chapter 2. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them, male and female, and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He quotes Genesis 2. But then he explains what this means in terms of how we see marriage. Because in Matthew 19, Jesus then says this, So they, so, that means because of this, so, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You see, he goes back to Genesis 2. He says, this is what marriage is, one flesh. And because it's one flesh, they are united. Therefore, what God has joined, because God joins them together, let no one separate. You see, Jesus affirms what we've just said. God created marriage. It is between one man and one woman, and it is permanent. So when we see the government, through legislation... Uh, and I put in quotes, redefining marriage, they aren't redefining marriage. Because marriage is not theirs to redefine. It is not a state institution, it is God's. So according to the Bible, same-sex marriage is not marriage. Now that's a, a subject for an, another, another time. Uh, but actually, early next year, uh, the FIC director, John Stevens, is coming uh, for one of the table talks, and he's speaking on the subject of gender and sexuality and all the issues around that. So uh, put that in your diary for, I think, January, uh, so there'll be more about that then. That's not what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5. But to understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5 on divorce, we have to understand what Jesus thought about marriage. And what he thought about marriage, we've seen from Matthew 19, is that Genesis 2 holds true. One man, one woman permanently for life and therefore he had a low view of divorce. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 5, we'll see that this is in sharp contrast to the Pharisees and teachers of the law who had a shallow definition of marriage, a shallow definition of marriage. Look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That's what the Pharisees said. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now again, as with the previous verses in this sermon, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had the word of the law right. They read in the Old Testament law that if you are going to divorce your wife, you must give her a certificate of divorce. You must give her this certificate. And that law is found in Deuteronomy 24, which is the only place where divorce is mentioned in the Old Testament in the context of the law. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, it's on page 202 in the Church Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 24, and I'm going to read the first four verses. This is the only place in the Old Testament law where you'll find any legislation that mentions divorce. And as you read this, you'll see that the legislation isn't really about divorce. The legislation here is a specific case about a remarriage. So it says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce... Gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if she asks, uh, if she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the law, Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord is giving you as an inheritance. So when we talked about Matthew 19 and verse 8, Jesus says that the reason that this law was given about the certificate of divorce was because the hearts of the people were hard. So in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees are challenging him, Jesus says there is divorce because the hearts of the people were hard. In other words, divorce was happening... And so God had to legislate for it. And as a consequence of divorce happening, there were women that were being thrown out of their home and left with no source of income or protection. Sometimes the women could go back to their parents. But often that was not able to be the case and so they were forced into prostitution or they were assumed to be adulteresses because they had been divorced. And so to protect the women, a law was put in place not as a command, and not as a command for divorce, but to regulate it and to protect the women. The only command in this passage in Deuteronomy you'll notice is that the woman or sorry the man is not able to remarry the woman he initially divorced. That's the command. The result of this was to stop men divorcing their wives without thinking about it. It made the divorce permanent for the most part because most women would remarry or they would be forced into prostitution. So if you stay in Deuteronomy 24, let's walk through the passage. The man marries the woman and she becomes displeasing to him Because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. The assumption we can make here is that the only reason to divorce was because the husband had found something that was indecent about her. Now we'll come back to what this means shortly, but it cannot mean adultery. Because just in a couple of chapters before this in Deuteronomy 22, adultery is punishable by death. So whatever is indecent, it cannot be adultery. The certificate of divorce was then given to the woman and it protected her from being accused of adultery. If she was accused, he could, she could hold up the certificate and say, look, I have a certificate of divorce. If I'd have committed adultery, I would have been stoned. Here's the certificate, I'm not an adulterer. And the point in Deuteronomy 24 is to legislate that if her second husband divorces her with a certificate, the first husband cannot remarry her because she is, in, look at verse 4, defiled. Why is she defiled? Well, the plain reading of the text is that she is defiled because she has remarried and had another one-flesh union with this second husband. So there's no command to divorce. It is permitted in the case of something indecent, but it is never commanded. So, what is this something indecent that allows for this certificate of divorce? Well, we know it can't be adultery. And today, as back then, there is much controversy over what this word means. In Jesus' day, there were two main schools of thought by two rabbis. One was called Hillel, and one was called Shammai. Hillel, he said... That a husband could divorce his wife for any reason at all. Something indecent can be any reason, really. And there were examples in Jewish writing where women were divorced for all sorts of reasons, including burning their bread. So if your wife burns your toast in the morning, you can divorce her. That was in, that was, that was the school of thought that Hillel, uh, had. Shimmai, on the other hand, he said that the only grounds for divorce was adultery by the wife. So there was a, a very strict school, and there was a very liberal school. Now, Hillel, the guy that said divorce for burning your toast, well, he was very popular with the men for obvious reasons—not because they didn't like burnt toast, but it was, for, it was for any because they could divorce for any reason at all. And this comes up more in Matthew 19. When the Pharisees are challenging Jesus on it. But it's worth noting two significant points about their shallow view of marriage. First of all, and this is back to Matthew chapter 5 now. First of all, they were mainly interested in getting the paperwork right. Notice how the focus in verse 31 is on the certificate of divorce. They thought that as long as they had got the paperwork in order, they were righteous. And in order to get the paperwork right, they had to look for exceptions that enabled them to divorce to get that paperwork. Which leads to the second point to note. They were looking at how can I divorce rather than how can I love my wife? How can I divorce rather than how can I love my wife? That was the problem. They wanted to get the paperwork right. So that way, if they were divorced, they were still righteous. Because i I've given her a certificate, so it's okay. Rather than the certificate protecting the woman, the certificate gave license to the man. And they were looking, how can I divorce? What reasons can I do it for? Oh, she's burnt my toast. Yes, there's a certificate, you see? That was their view of marriage. And this kind of shallow definition is in our world today where we see no-fault divorce and prenuptial agreements and so on. Prenuptial agreements is where uh, you have a list of conditions at the beginning that if you get divorced, this is what you're allowed to have in the divorce. This is how we divide things up. I mean, what a way to go into a marriage, yeah? (laughs) Like that. But the same problem of this view, low view of marriage, often occurs in the church and it occurs in the church when we are looking, first of all, for all the exceptions, rather than missing and missing the thrust of what Jesus is saying, rather than looking for how can I save my marriage. When we look, first of all, for the exceptions of why I can divorce, rather than how can I save my marriage, We are falling into the trap that the Pharisees were in, and we have a a shallower view of marriage than we ought to have. Now, we'll look at Matthew 19 in the future, but in this passage in Matthew 5, we'll see that rather than looking for the exception that gives us the right paperwork, Jesus shows us a deeper definition of marriage. So Jesus' definition of marriage is much deeper than divorce for any reason. In fact, it's totally different from divorce for any reason. Look at what he says in verse 32. But I tell you that anyone who divorces, divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now this is linked to the previous verses on Adultery. Jesus talks in verse 28 of committing adultery, okay, of committing adultery. When you look at a woman lustfully, you're committing adultery in your heart. Here, he's talking of causing adultery. You see the difference? In verse 28, committing adultery, here he talks of causing adultery. So what is Jesus saying? Let's let's try and be clear on this. When a man divorces a woman for an illegitimate reason then he is causing her to commit adultery and the person that marries that woman commits adultery as well. Why is she or her new husband committing adultery? The reason is that the first marriage is a one-flesh union for life and if that union is not broken by a legitimate divorce, then the new union, in the words of Deuteronomy 24, is defiled. Often, The woman is forced into adultery in the same way in Matthew as she was in Deuteronomy, to support herself. And the man that marries her is committing adultery because the woman is still, in the eyes of God, married to her original husband. You see, the focus of Jesus here is not on the exception. The focus and the radical difference from the culture around him was that there were no other exceptions. You see, there weren't any other reasons. section immorality, that is it. And in Mark chapter 10, and in Luke chapter 16 and verse 18, and in, and, in, and in an illustration used in Romans chapter 7 verse 1, there are no exceptions found. And the reason for this is because of the sanctity of marriage that Jesus holds from Genesis chapter 2. However, we must look at the exception. It is there. We can't just avoid it. And it is an unfortunate uh, uh, state of affairs in our society where we have to talk about the exception. It would be a much better state if we didn't really have to think about the exception, but we do, because there it is. And the exception is for sexual immorality. And the, the Greek word behind this is porneia, and it refers to any sex outside of marriage. It can include adultery, but there is a different Greek word for adultery, so it is broader than that. It includes sins such as homosexuality, incest, and so on, but it would also include pornography, self-stimulation, and so on. It is a broad definition, and it's not easy to distinguish what would class as acceptable in terms of the exception here. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but the exception seems to be here in Matthew because the Sermon on the Mount is referring to the Old Testament law, where there was also an exception, something indecent. Jesus is giving us the meaning, the deeper meaning, than the Pharisees' interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1-4. to So to help us, let's compare the two passages and I'll put them on the screen. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. And then it goes on to explain the legislation regarding the remarriage of that woman. This is the law that the Pharisees refer to. What does Jesus say? Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. You see, according to Jesus... Something indecent is sexual immorality. This means that divorce in this case is permitted but never commanded. And that's important. It is permitted but never commanded. No other reasons are permitted. Now, uh, Paul the Apostle speaks of the case in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 of an unbelieving spouse leaving a believer. In which case, there's not much a believer can do. And Paul says in that case, they're not bound to the marriage. And a divorce will happen. The unbelieving spouse is left. What can you do? As a parenthesis though, it's worth understanding that in Roman times, usually only a man could divorce a woman. And today, today, That is not the case. And so it's right that we apply this both to men divorcing women and women divorcing men. In fact, Mark chapter 10 and verse 12 talks of the woman divorcing her husband. So in the Bible, it talks of both. This isn't just uh, women are stuck, uh, but men can divorce in the case of sexual immorality. That's not the the way it works. This applies to both. Well, so far, most uh, Christians would agree with what I've said. Most Christians would agree with what I've said. Marriage is permanent, but in the tragic situation of sexual immorality, divorce is not commanded, but it's permitted. And in the case of desertion of the unbelieving spouse, then divorce is just unavoidable. Where there is a fork in the road is on the point of remarriage. Does the exception that Jesus gives here in matthew five thirty two and more to the point in Matthew chapter 19 verse nine, which we'll look at in a while, does that carry over to remarriage or does it just include divorce? Now there are a number of views on this, but I want just to share uh, the two main views on remarriage. and in presenting these views to you I'm going to give you the views and then I'm going to give you the main challenge that each of these views have so that you are forced, whatever view you take, to question that view and in the end, hopefully, come to a place where we're not taking divorce lightly but neither are we taking remarriage lightly as well. And in some cases, we need to accept that remarriage is adultery, as Jesus points out here. So, view number one. View number one is that divorce is permitted in the case of sexual immorality, but remarriage is not acceptable while the spouse who has divorced is still living. This view is the plain reading of what Mark chapter 10 And Luke chapter 16 verse 18 say about remarriage because there are no exceptions there. And it can be argued the plain reading of this exception clause in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32. Look again at Matthew chapter 5 verse 32 and answer this question. When is remarriage adultery? It is when the woman who has been divorced for something that is not sexual immorality. And if she's been divorced for sexual immorality, well, then she's already an adulterer, so the remarriage isn't going to make her one that she isn't already. This view also takes into account Deuteronomy 24 in this way. Jesus is saying that something indecent is sexual immorality, as we saw a moment ago. But Jesus, in this view, also agrees with what Deuteronomy 24 says about remarriage. It's defiling. Let's look at those uh, verses again. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and writes her a certificate of divorce, the something indecent is whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. But look at what it says about remarriage. Her first, first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. So theref, then Jesus says, in, in, in the context, remarriage makes her the victim of adultery. Some may say that this view is unfair on the spouse that is not at fault. And yes, I would say that is true. But we are sinned against in lots of ways where there are consequences to those actions which are not fair, but we have to live with. So in this view, Remarriage is always defiling whatever the exception that is in place for the divorce. That seems to be the reading of Deuteronomy 24. You have to, you have to say that, G, that Deuteronomy 24 says remarriage is defiling. That's the plain reading of it. However, there is a challenge to this view. And the challenge actually comes from Matthew chapter 19, And verse 9, where Jesus mentions this same exception again. And I'll put the verse on the screen, as it will be helpful uh, to to have it there. Matthew chapter 19 and verse uh, verse 9. Here Jesus says these words. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The subject of this verse is not just divorce, but is divorce followed by remarriage. If you say that the exception applies to divorce but not to remarriage, which is the first view, this verse would have to make sense if we left out the part about remarriage. But here's what that verse says if we take out the remarriage bit. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, Commits adultery. Well, well, that doesn't make sense. You aren't committing adultery if you divorce someone if they commit sexual immorality. So that's the challenge on that view. So the support from it would come from Deuteronomy 24. Remarriage is defiling there. But the challenge to that view would come from Matthew 19. It doesn't, the verse doesn't make sense if you take out the remarriage part of the verse. The other view is that divorce is permitted in the case of sexual immorality and remarriage is permitted if divorce is permitted. Those that take this view argue from the exception in Matthew 19 verse 9 that remarriage is acceptable in the case of sexual immorality. They argue that divorce is a definite break in the marriage covenant and the spouse is no longer bound, to use Paul's words, to the marriage vows. Furthermore, they would say that remarriage is always expected as it is in Deuteronomy 24 and Jesus expects remarriage because he says that if you divorce the woman you make her the victim of adultery. That means he's expecting her to remarry. A further argument for this view is that where adultery was committed in the Old Testament the penalty was death and since this was not allowed during the Roman era because the Romans didn't allow it then divorce was an equivalent, freeing the person to remarry as if the divorcer was dead. Well, the challenge on this view comes from the support from the other. The plain reading of Deuteronomy 24 and also the other verses in Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel that talk about remarriage seem to indicate, well, they do indicate that a person is defiled if they remarry, And in the other verses, in the other Gospels, remarriage is just not permitted. If you take this second view, you have to be able to have an answer for those questions. And I'm not going to give you the answers to both of those uh, challenges. Those challenges are where you need to go back to the scriptures and read and answer for yourself. There are difficult issues here, aren't there? But at the very least, it's worth considering that God may not want you to remarry. Remarriage should only take place if the person is convinced from the scripture that this is right. And remarriage should only take place after much prayer and counsel from other Christians. It must never, ever be just about your feelings or your desires It must be what God wants you to do. Going for remarriage based on our feelings risks us having a spouse, not as a spouse, but more of an idol. And a spouse as an idol always lets us down as any idol does and will never be satisfied in God. In all of this, though, we must bear in mind that the main focus of what Jesus is saying is not, here's how you can divorce. Spending so much time on the exception clouds the main issue. Exceeding righteousness in the kingdom of God regarding marriage is that we stay married and we don't divorce for any reason at all, Just which is the opposite of what the culture around us is doing. In fact, the kingdom application is not, you can divorce if for sexual immorality... The kingdom application is reconciliation. Even in the case of sexual immorality, reconciliation should always be the first route we should try to take. This, after all, is how God treats us. We've been looking at Hosea in the mornings. In Hosea, we see God going after the adulterous wife. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about Reconciliation between man and God. Matthew chapter 18 gives the parable of the unmerciful servant, talking about forgiveness. And even in the Sermon on the Mount earlier on, Jesus relates the application to murder as reconcile with those that you are not reconciled with. In all of our marriages, there needs to be a great deal of forgiveness. All of us who are married sin in our marriages. All of us who are married let our spouses down. All the time, really, when we think about it. We need to be forgiving one another day by day. But this, but, and this is a, a most important point to bear in mind with this passage on divorce. The point we need to bear in mind is reconciliation demands repentance. This is so important in marriage, God does not forgive us without repentance. The word repent means to turn around 180 degrees. It's more than intellectual. It is a radical transformation of the person from the mind to the emotions and to the will. It results in us living differently as God would want us to live. It is a turning from sin to following God's will. And so when we are calling on our spouse and asking them to forgive us, That forgiveness must come with repentance, a change in our behaviour. And I say this because I have seen this verse in Matthew abused by people who have sinned in sexually immoral ways and have used this verse in Matthew, you cannot divorce me, to beat their wives over the head with or their husbands in both cases, Because they say, I haven't physically committed adultery, so you cannot divorce me. And they use this verse to say, you can't divorce me, you can't divorce me, you can't divorce me. And there's no repentance in that behavior. That is the same view of marriage as the Pharisees had, just in a different way. So where do we draw the line in terms of what constitutes sexual immorality and this permission for divorce? When is is it acceptable? Well, the answer is twofold. And the answer depends on who you are in terms of who is the sinner and who is the forgiver. In terms of the person that's been sexually immoral, the line should be very close indeed. It should be a fine line because we should flee sexual immorality. Every husband and wife who is tempted to commit sexual immorality should recognise this could destroy my marriage. The line is right there. We shouldn't have the attitude of the line's all the way over there and the line is I physically commit adultery so nothing else really matters. The line should be crossing this line means my marriage could be destroyed. That's the line. So when we're thinking of looking at pornography or when we're treating our wives with contempt as we look at other women, or in the case of a woman, perhaps spending inappropriate time with other men instead of their husband, the line should be very close indeed and we don't want to cross it. In these cases, it's easy for a spouse who is being sinned against to reach the end of their tether and then the sinning spouse turns to them and say, well look at Matthew 5 verse 32, you cannot divorce me let me suggest something. If you are a sinner in this area and you are having this conversation with your spouse, can I suggest you don't turn to Matthew chapter 5? There's a whole other bunch of places you can go. Matthew chapter 3 verse 8 might be a good one. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Or Luke chapter 18 verse 13. God have mercy on me a sinner. Or Ephesians chapter 5, where husbands are told to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. Or where wives are told to submit to their own husbands as you do in the Lord. You see, rather than saying, you can't divorce me, go elsewhere in the Bible and say, I am so sorry. I I, I repent of my sin. I'm going to change my behaviour. You see, divorce is permitted in case of sexual immorality. But we can't just have... Just a, a line that we have cut and dry. Flee sexual immorality. Stop thinking about a line. But the line for the spouse who has been sinned against is the opposite. The line for that person should be as far away as possible and not so thin. We should do all we can to be reconciled. And where a spouse is showing genuine repentance, then we must do all we can. To continue in the marriage. Even when the sin has been most painful. Even when you are hurting deeply. That's how God is with us. It may take counselling. It may take much work and prayer. But if we hold the same view of marriage as Jesus does. Then we honour God in showing the same forgiveness that he has shown to us. Now, I've not had time to talk about situations where there is abuse in a relationship. That doesn't come up in this passage in Matthew, and we've said lots so far. But the counsel to the one being abused, in short, is always, let's get out safely and seek help. In that case, the spouse is breaking God's law, not in terms necessarily of sexual immorality, but it's breaking God's law in terms of loving their wife or their husband, and they are breaking the law of the land to which all of us as Christians are in submission to as long as it doesn't go against the Bible. And by the way, the law against beating a spouse is not contrary to the Bible. So in conclusion, let me speak to people in various situations. So if you are unmarried, and that includes never been married, widowed or divorced, the counsel is this, from these verses. Don't rush into marriage. Make sure that you are marrying the right person and that you're marrying after prayer over whether it's right. You're not just going in it based on, just your feelings. There must be feelings there, of course. I'm not saying you should get married and not feel anything. That's stupid, of course. But there mu- you must be sure this is what God wants. That means speaking to other people, getting their counsel. If you feel like you want to marry and every other Christian you know is saying don't do it, you probably shouldn't do it. It must be based on prayer. It must be based on studying seriously the scriptures if it's a remarriage. And the Bible is clear that there are blessings to not being married. The unmarried life is of great value to the church of God. Jesus Christ and Paul the Apostle were never married or weren't married, at least when Paul was writing his epistles. So don't rush into marriage and take marriage seriously. Don't go into it lightly. It's a serious, serious thing. If you are remarried, as I was putting this together, I thought of a scenario. What happens if someone in our fellowship has remarried, they listen to this and then they come to the view, actually, remarriage isn't right. What do you do? You stay married (laughs) to your current marriage partner. There is no biblical mandate to end the the one flesh relationship that you are already in because you feel you shouldn't have ended the first one. No, in fact, one Corinthians seven, Paul talks about remaining in the state that you are in, and that is the biblical mandate for you now. And then, what if you are married but are going through difficulties? You know, when we come to church, uh, I don't. I, I have to say, I don't. I, I see, I've seen marriages that have been in crisis, and we've dealt with marriages that have been in crisis, but I've never seen that on a Sunday morning. <laughs> I've not really seen that on a Sunday evening at church. When we come to church, all our marriages look just great, don't they? But there may be people here this evening that are going through great difficulties in their marriage, even though they come with a smile on their face. Let me encourage you not to be embarrassed to seek help and do what it takes to stay the course and to thrive within your marriage. You don't have to struggle on your own as a two. There is help there. Come and ask for it. And we would be delighted to help. Because we, as a church, have a high view of marriage. We want to see marriages thrive in our fellowship. Come and seek help. But one thing to bear in mind, if you are struggling with marriage, don't just think of divorce as an option. It's a last resort in an exceptional circumstance. Well, last time we saw that adultery is serious. And since divorce is either from or results in adultery, it is a serious matter as well. Remember why Jesus takes sexual sin so seriously. Marriage is good for us and for society. But marriage also images the relationship between God and his people, an exclusive relationship of love sexual immorality and thus illegitimate divorce treats god and that god-given picture and thus god himself with contempt as marriage pictures christ in the church may we as his kingdom people image that that in such a way that our marriages are totally countercultural the glorious news of the gospel to both the married and the unmarried Is that Christ, our husband, will never divorce us. He continues to forgive us and is making us into his perfect bride. Let me finish with these uh, verses from uh, Paul in Ephesians. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Notice Paul says there, I'm talking about Christ and the church. May our marriages image, shine forth that picture of Jesus Christ and his church. And may we do so to the glory of our Saviour. Amen. Well, if we're going to have marriages that thrive, we need to have a thriving relationship with God. And that's our next song, is a prayer that our great God would come and occupy our hearts. Let's stand as we sing before we come to the Lord's table.